Welcome to the third episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and for the next 30 to 45 minutes, we'll be flipping through some stories, anything from politics to puppies. And of course, at the end, we'll have our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into the stories. Our first one comes out of Ohio from the nation. Can this teenage Democrat win in Ohio? Sam Lawrence is a college student running for the Ohio House of Representatives, modeling his campaign after Tim Ryan and Pete Buttigieg. The Democratic Party spent the past decade watching in horror as Ohio, once considered a battleground state, turned reliably red. Donald Trump won the state in both 2016 and 2020, and his influence, along with interest groups like the Center for Christian Virtue, has only pushed the Ohio GOP further right. Since 2011, Republicans have held the governor's office, the House, and the Senate, and extreme gerrymandering could soon cement conservative control. Now, the Ohio Dems have turned to an unlikely candidate to unseat a Republican incumbent. Sam Lawrence is a 19-year-old sophomore at Miami University and is running for the Ohio House of Representatives in District 47. After winning an uncontested primary in August, he will face an opponent three times his age in November's midterm election. Fortunately for Lawrence, some of the biggest names in the state's Democratic politics have already endorsed him, including the Ohio House Minority Whip Jessica Miranda, progressive radio host Tho Hartman, and House Minority Leader Allison Russo. Last year, Lawrence worked as an intern on Russo's congressional campaign for the 15th District's special election. Quote, Young does not equal inexperienced, Lawrence said in an interview with Miami University's student paper in March. Quote, I know Ohio's politics, I know Ohio's big players, and I've already started making connections. End quote. The influence of the Democratic leaders is deeply felt at Lawrence's headquarters. Kelly Norris, his campaign manager, and another student at Miami University described their operation as, quote, coordinated with House members. In other races, young people running for office have complained about being viewed as outsiders by the party establishment and receiving very little support. But in Ohio, Lawrence has been welcomed with open arms. Quote, there's a strong connection between the Sam Lawrence campaign and the state Democratic Party, end quote, said Patrick Holdeman, his chief political advisor. Quote, we talk to them a lot, end quote. Lawrence's staffers have, are almost entirely fellow Miami University students. He knew his director of fundraising through a few of his school's extracurricular activities, and he met his chief political advisor from the College Democrats Club. What united them, according to Norris, was their shared thinking of, quote, politics as a career, end quote. The group decided to launch Lawrence's campaign in February, quote, I know that I was able to work with Democrats, Republicans, and independents alike, said Lawrence in an announcement video, quote, I promise there is a middle ground. So we can pause for a little bit here. I, I find this delightful and impressive 19 years old still in college and he's running for office whether he wins or loses it it doesn't matter it means 
it's a great symbol for people in our generation. Uh, if people aren't aware, I'm in Gen Z as well. It is a great sign that people are willing to be this active in the political scene, not only being activists and going out and complaining, but actually trying to get into office and make a change. Whether I agree with all his policies or not, that doesn't matter. He's still an inspiring story, and whether he wins or loses, he still means a lot. I, I This kid has gumption, and I love it. Lawrence is inspired by pol- politicians like 40-year-old Tim Ryan, calling the congressman and Senate candidate one of his idols. Earlier this month, under a selfie with Ryan, Lawrence posted an ActBlue donation link. Quote, chip in to help me make Tim proud. Like Ryan, Lawrence said that he focused on, quote, bringing people in as opposed to pushing them away, end quote, by trying to run on, quote, common sense ideals, end quote. For Ryan, this has meant openly appealing to Trump's base. In March, the congressman released an advertisement that blamed China for the economic challenges facing Ohio workers. If you don't know what he's talking about there, um, there was a policy in place at the beginning of this year that exported a lot of the manufacturing of solar panels to China, which is a large industry in Ohio. Back to the article. The ad received considerable pushback from his own party and was considered xenophobic by members of the Asian American community. Quote, it is us versus China, and instead of taking them on, Washington is wasting our time with stupid fights, end quote, said Ryan. Quote, capitalism versus communism. It's not backing down, end quote. When asked about the ad, Lawrence said the messaging, quote, could have been softer, end quote, and didn't believe his campaign would have used the congressman's exact language. Nevertheless, Lauren agreed that Ryan's main point, with Ryan's main point, quote, we need to be tough on China, end quote. Lawrence has been much more open to criticizing the left. The Gen Z candidate thinks Democratic leadership should help, quote, bring the progressive wing a little bit closer to the center, end quote, a strategy that seems noticeably out of sync with the thinking of other members of his generation. The 2022 Harvard Youth Poll, which was conducted by the Kennedy School Institute for Politics, found that only 41% of those under 30 approved of President Biden's job performance. Similarly to Lawrence, Biden campaigned on his desire to work across the aisle for legislative success. Two years later, the leading reason for young people's disapproval of the president has been his ineffectiveness. Despite acknowledging this dissolution, Norris and the campaign believe that, quote, we need to work with what we have, end quote. Lawrence's fiercest talking point is saying the Ohio State House is riddled with corruption and directly naming his Republican opponent, Sarah Carruthers, as part of the problem. Quote, we need to vote corrupt politicians out, starting right here in Ohio State House of Representatives, end quote. Lawrence pointed to the gun and nursing home lobbies as two corrosive influences in Carruthers' leadership. But... What is the source of Ohio's corruption? Lawrence didn't have an answer. Quote, the specific cause, I can't tell you. End quote. Asked if moneyed interests played a harmful role in our political system, Dwyer said she ha- was, quote, honestly not sure. End quote. 
Would Lawrence allow corporate PACs to donate to the campaign, a position that Democrats have increasingly adopted? Dwyer felt that they would still accept those donations if the company in question shared their, quote, ideals. Those ideals include combating climate change, his, quote, number one issue, and establishing health care as a, quote, basic right. Lawrence's website advocates for medical system where, quote, Ohioans can help, can keep their private insurance if they choose, but everyone will have access to health care that they need, end quote. The idea is directly inspired by the platform of another young politician, Pete Buttigieg, and his, quote, Medicare for all who want it plan. During the 2020 presidential primary, Lawrence was a canvasser for the millennial mayor and cites him as a major role model. Quote, I take a lot of my health care policy positions from Pete Buttigieg, end quote. In Florida, progressive activist Maxwell Frost recently became the first member of Gen Z to win a congressional primary and will likely secure a seat in November. But not everyone on the Democratic side is sanguine about Lawrence's perspectives. A Democratic Party official in Ohio, speaking off the record, disparaged the concept of teenage candidates, calling them a marketing ploy to generate publicity and produce donations on behalf of the state Democratic Party. As of now, Lawrence has over 60,000 followers on Twitter. One campaign advisor called online advertising a key element of building Lawrence's brand. Norris said that, quote, coming up with advertisements for fundraising, end quote, was one of her primary duties. The local party official said that these candidates often equate social media exposure with electoral success, saying that Democrats should rethink the strategy of having Gen Z candidates in order to bring in donors. Quote, I have not heard that ever, end quote, said Lawrence. Instead, his foremost goal is, quote, to win this thing. But if he loses, he hopes to still be, quote, a beacon of hope for people in my generation. Of course, other Ohio Democratic officials continue to publicly applaud Lawrence's efforts, suggesting that he has a unique opportunity to reshape state politics. But if the prevailing ideology of Lawrence's campaign is nearly identical to that of mainstream Ohio Democrats, his age might be the only difference, which is a, a good point. Politics, as anyone listening may know, is a friends game. And it sounds like he does have plenty of friends and contacts higher up in the party, but he hasn't had enough time in the game to fully build out connections with everybody in that network. So we'll, we'll see if he prevails. Like I said earlier, I think this is a very inspiring story. I think what he said there at the end, which is he wants to be a beacon of hope for people, maybe I'm a little jaded here because I'm young and I want to see people our age more active in politics, but I think he can be a beacon for hope. I mean, when I look at this, I think I see someone who is willing to put themselves out there, actively participate in the regulations of their state, in the decision-making of their state. And he is also putting in the work while at college, while probably dealing with midterms or the stress of going back for this next year. So it's very impressive. And I think if he could apply this work ethic when he does get into office and tackle some of the corruption he's talking about, he could do great. But 
that was a, a nice story that really resonated with me. Let's go to something that's not necessarily in the same ballpark. Let's go to a story here from National Review. And it's called Biden's Appeasement in Afghanistan Endangers Us All. One year after our catastrophic withdrawal from Cabal, a dramatic shift in the U.S. posture towards the region is more important than ever. For 20 years, the United States military ensured the security of our homeland against terrorism emanating from Afghanistan, a guarantee that has rapidly deteriorated since the catastrophic withdrawal last August. Today, multiple terrorist organizations operate with impunity inside the Afghan government and across greater Afghanistan, ensuring that al-Qaeda leader Amman al-Zawiri will never harm another American was a necessary action. But the recent strike has raised serious questions about America's ability to address terrorism from, quote, over the horizon. Al-Zawiri's presence on the rooftop in Afghanistan's capital demonstrates the Taliban and Haikia networks are providing a safe haven for al-Qaeda, the terror group responsible for 9-11, far away from our reach. Over the past 12 months, ISIS-K fighters have flowed into the country at alarming rates, conducting at least 26 terror attacks in and around the region. How did we not see this coming, pulling out of Afghanistan in the nature that we did? We had made no assurances to the government, or at least we had no way of actually backing up those assurances. And also, we had to take the Taliban on its word. And as you'll here later on in this article, the Taliban is obviously not to be trusted. They renege on their word all the time. Back to the article. Beyond the worsening security situation, the Taliban's return to power has eroded the hard-fought gains of Afghan women and girls who are once again not allowed to work, attend secondary school, or travel independently. Now, they are forced back into wearing full-body coverings like the burqa, Going forward, the Biden administration overtures to the Taliban in Qatar must be cut off and an alternative course pursued. First, the United States must make serious and meaningful investments in diplomatic outreach and security to Afghans' northern neighbors. As is too often the case, the Biden administration's focus in the region leads back to Iran, the world's number one state sponsor of terrorism. The fanciful pursuit of an Iran deal has been prioritized over making inroads for significant security cooperation with Afghanistan's other border states. Previous administrations have engaged and succeeded in both diplomatic engagement and security cooperation to Afghanistan's north. In the days following 9-11, the U.S. prioritized overflight access to Afghanistan via Uzbekistan, securing both the airfield and a four-year status of forces agreement, which authorized basing for U.S. military personnel and weapon systems. Successive administrations continued to invest in the partnership, first establishing the C5 plus 1 engagement concept, a diplomatic agreement of the five Central Asia countries of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan with the United States. 
Cooperation peaked during the Trump administration. Each pioneered the Central Asian Investment Partnership in early 2021. A commitment to economic collaboration between the U.S. and other Central Asia allies along Afghan's border, Afghanistan's border. So this is this was something that I found very interesting when reading through it the first time. And it's not because oh we're talking with Central Asian powers, we're trying to shore up around Afghanistan. It's what I was thinking is it's going to be very interesting to see what the situation is like now when we are engaged diplomatically in a proxy war with Russia, if you want to put it that way. And these states still rely heavily on Russia, and they're interconnected with Russia. They were former Soviet states for the most part. Um, Some of them have water tributaries that come from Russia, and they've been kind of forced by Putin to stay closer to Russia than any other um, states that they could be partnered with. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see how Biden and these countries, their diplomats, interact with one another during this Ukraine war. We'll see how it pans out. But I do agree overall that we need to take an approach that allows us to better monitor Afghanistan because the way we pulled out showed weakness. It encouraged al-Qaeda to move back in and invite, maybe not necessarily invite, don't want to accuse them, but there have definitely been more terrorist attacks in Afghanistan and there have been more operations or more members of those organizations visible inside the country. Now, is Afghanistan, I mean, the Taliban specifically, saying, oh, yes, come on in, we will totally house you? I can't say that for sure, but they're definitely not stopping it. As mentioned earlier in the article, there's twenty. there's been 26 terrorist attacks by ISIS-K ever since we pulled out of Afghanistan. That could be coincidental. They may have planned those attacks ahead of time anyway. But the fact that we have no countermeasures besides a drone strike from 50,000 miles away, halfway across the world, we need to have a little bit more control there. We need to be able to have drones flying overhead to gain intelligence and see what is happening in Afghanistan. Now, do I think we should have boots on the ground? Not necessarily. But intelligence wins wars, and intelligence at this day and age, is extremely crucial, considering we're living in a hotbed time. We have China escalating with Taiwan. We have Russia invading Ukraine. These are all hotbed moments that are leading to a more unstable world. And the more information we can have about areas that are also unstable, like the Middle East, the better off we'll be in the long term. All right, back to the back to the article. The Biden administration has not built on these efforts. Instead, Biden used the C5 plus one to force partners into non-binding climate agreements, placing John Kerry's progressive climate (laughs) posturing over economic and security cooperation. This demonstrates an abject neglect of the region by our commander-in-chief, a choice that is proven costly. Without over-the-horizon surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities, 
based on close to Afghanistan, based close to Afghanistan, America's security will be significantly hampered by long overflight windows and limited options. The United States must continue to monitor terrorism threats originating in Afghanistan and work with neighboring allies to identify, deter, and disrupt violent extremism. Furthermore, President Biden must recognize his failure to protect the rights of women and girls in Afghanistan and adjust accordingly. The administration declared to domestic rights groups, Congress, and multinational organizations that it had the means to preserve the rights and education of Afghan women and girls on this account. They have failed. In November 2021, a Biden National Security Council spokesperson promised that unless Afghan women and girls... Rights were recognized. Afghanistan, under the Taliban control, would remain a pariah state. Months later, a hollow quid pro quo was offered to the Taliban. The exchange of some form of diplomatic recognition for the return of girls to secondary school. On March 23, 2022, hours before schools were to open again, the Taliban reneged on their agreement, which is what I was talking about earlier, turning girls away at gunpoint. The Taliban's reprehensible behavior is underscored by their hypocrisy. Some of the daughters of Taliban and Hokai leaders now attend school in Pakistan. Official diplomatic engagement and access to funding without guaranteed liberties for women and girls legitimizes the Taliban's rule and further subjugates women to a brutal regime. Finally, any consideration of normalization, releasing held currency or facilities facilitating the Taliban's access to international organizations cannot take place while the Taliban regime remains in power. Many senior leaders in the Taliban's de facto government are sanctioned by the United Nations and are designated global terrorists by the United States. Despite despite continuing overtures from the State Department or careless release of taxpayers' money through the U.S. Agency for International Development, no financial incentive or offers of institutional legitimacy have produced sustainable reforms on behalf of the Afghan people. The elevation of hardline Taliban members to the leadership of, of Afghanistan directly threatens the national security interests of the United States. We must demonstrate global leadership at the UN and with our allies to apply pressure maintain isolation, and weaken the Taliban's tenuous grip on the country. Now, I understand this isn't necessarily an opinion piece, but he's using lots of strong language here, and he's quite literally giving (laughs) policy advice. So your bias is showing a little bit here. I understand it's not an opinion piece, though. It's supposed to be a factual piece, so just rein it in a little bit. Uh, Continuing unconditional engagement with the Taliban denies the clear and present danger they impose locally, undermines U.S. national security in and beyond the regime region, and risks the blood and treasures of our military diplomats invested over the past 20 years. The Biden administration must shift from a posture of appeasement to imposing maximum pressure. Rapid change is necessary for continued American security and credibility. And while he does have a very hardline approach to what he's saying, I, I do agree that for our credibility's sake, we need to have some sort of presence and security as well. Now, like I said, not boots on the ground, but some form of intelligence or at least 
some apparatus in place, we need to have a strategic agreement with our allies to the north just so we can at least keep our ear to the ground and stay informed. But let's move on. I have a really cool story here today. Four things we've learned about NASA's planned base camp on the moon. So if you don't know, they have a mission plan for, I believe, 2025, which is called Artemis 3. Uh, sorry, Artemis 3. And it, it just sounds so cool. As a person who's been looking up and wondering why we're not exploring space more and who's been really inspired by SpaceX, uh, I, I find this story really cool. And it's uh, nice to see that we're willing to be explorers again. We kind of explored everything here on Earth. And as Star Trek said back in the day, space, the final frontier. So I think there's lots of um, optimistic things here. And I'm, I'm happy to read this story to you. The headline reads, Four Things We've Learned About NASA's Planned Base Camp on the Moon by Alex Fox, the Smithsonian Magazine. Humans haven't set foot on the moon in more than half a century, but NASA's Artemis program is going to send them back with a series of missions beginning in early September. When the first astronaut plants her boots in the lunar soil in 2025 as part of Artemis III, assuming the current timeline holds, It will be the start of an even more ambitious project than sending humans back to the moon. NASA's plan to construct a base camp somewhere among the gray dust and craggy rocks of the moon's south pole. This lunar outpost will allow the Artemis missions to eventually shatter Apollo 17's record for the longest stay on the moon, which is 40, sorry, 74 hours, 59 minutes and 38 seconds while serving as a jump-off point for in-depth exploration. NASA says the camp is going to start small, only facilitating missions for a week or two. But as the camp grows in size and sophistication, the agency hopes to sustain crews for up to two months at a time. Current plans call for the lunar cabin and an open-top rover similar to the kind used in the Apollo missions and something akin to an RV that would provide mobility while allowing astronauts to live and work away from the base for days or weeks at a time. Quote, on each new trip, astronauts are going to have an increasing level of comfort with the capabilities to explore and study more of the moon than ever before. End quote, said Kathy Luders, Associate Administrator for Human Spaceflight at NASA, in a statement. Quote, with more demand for access to the moon, We are developing the technologies to achieve an unprecedented human and robotic presence 240,000 miles from home. Our experience on the moon this decade will prepare us for an even greater adventure in the universe, human exploration of Mars, end quote. Hearing these sort of things, is just, it's so inspiring and it makes me so hopeful for the future of humanity. Who cares what we're doing here on Earth right now? The politics, the baloney, the power struggles. This is something that we can all get behind. And, you know, when we get to Mars, there will probably be claiming of resources and it will devolve a little bit. But right now, we're in the idealistic stage of space exploration, and I am all here for it. Next, central to NASA's vision for the Artemis camp, base camp is finding and extracting resources from the moon itself. 
This will lighten the load of rocks blasting off from Earth with supplies and potentially allow astronauts to remain on the moon for longer periods of time. These resources may include water, ice, oxygen, metals, or building materials made from lunar dust or rocks. Since the Artemis program's introduction in 2019, its timeline has stretched out a bit. The original plan was to set up the first iteration of the base camp by 2030, but an internal planning document obtained by the outlet Ars Technica suggests it may be more like 2034. That might seem a long way off, but around the world, teams of scientists and engineers are already hard at work to make the dream of humans living on the moon a reality. We talked to some of those experts and learned four things about the Artemis moon base. First, NASA will seek out crucial resources at the Lunar South Pole site. I mean, obviously, we're going to have to. And the first thing I thought when reading this is Lunar South Pole, does that mean that there's going to be ice there? And as you'll hear in a second, that if you were thinking the same thing, you're right on the right on the money. A South Pole location for the lunar base offers astronauts two crucial ingredients, periods of continuous light from the sun and deep craters with depths that have been shrouded in darkness for billions of years. Because of the way the moon is tilted relative to the sun, its South Pole experiences periods of up to two months of continuous light each year, with the sun circling just around the horizon of the, the whole time. All this sunlight can provide the Artemis base camp with ample solar power. NASA is currently exploring designs that hold a solar array more than 30 feet in the air to make the most of the available sunlight, says Persan Desai, a deputy associate direct administrator of NASA's Space Technology Mission Directorate. The same tilt that creates months of continuous illumination at the lunar poles also means that some of its craters have shadowed areas that haven't seen the sun since the crater's formation. These super-cold, super-dark craters, known as permanently shadowed regions, are where scientists have found evidence of water ice. There it is. If this frozen water turns out to be accessible and plentiful, it will be hugely valuable valuable for residents of the Artemis base camp and for supplying flights back to Earth or to Mars. Water can also be used as fuel in space travel because it can be turned into propellant. That said, NASA can't guarantee that the water ice on the moon is plentiful, accessible, or free of contaminants. That would require extensive refining to remove. These pieces of information, along with the location of the largest deposits, are going to be the subject of various NASA NASA efforts, including Volatile Investigative Polar Exploration Rover, or VIPER. Don't you just love their acronyms? They they really do love their acronyms (laughs) at NASA. This mobile robot is expected to arrive to the Lunar South Pole to search for water sometime in late 2024. But if the water present on the moon turns out to be a non-sparter upon further investigation... Ben Busey, who leads NASA's Lunar Surface Innovation Initiative based at John Hopkins University, says the key to establishing a lunar base camp will shift to lowering the cost of rocketing payloads between Earth and the moon. In other words, bringing everything down in cost so that it will be easier to construct and supply the base from Earth. 
A new rover will let astronauts explore the moon without leaving base camp. The lunar terrain vehicle will be the first step toward establishing a base camp. It is scheduled to arrive on a mission sometimes after Artemis 3 in 2025. Greg Chaffers, the director of the Technical Integration Office in NASA's Exploration System Development Mission <laughs> Directorate, says it will be possible to operate the new moon buggy remotely and that the rover will also have some ability to autonomously avoid hazards like rocks and craters. This will allow astronauts to explore the lunar environment from the safety of a lander on earlier missions and from the base camp on later missions. This also means that NASA can use the LTV to continue to conduct scientific or mission-related work even when humans are not on the moon. With or without a person behind the wheel, the LTV is going to be critical for searching out for water, ice, and other lunar resources, which will in turn help NASA select the best site for the more permanent elements of the base camp. Astronauts will be able to explore the moon without spacesuits. This part intrigued me. While the LTV's Autonomy and remote-controlled capabilities are powerful innovations. Its fundamental design isn't likely to deviate much from the rovers that have come before it. To drive the open-top LTV, astronauts need to don their spacesuits, and that's where NASA's concept for a lunar mobile home enters wholly uncharted territory from an engineering standpoint. NASA's RV-like concept, dubbed the Habitable Mobility Platform, will have a pressurized interior with life support systems, meaning passengers can safely ride inside without spacesuits. This makes life easier for astronauts, as putting on spacesuits can take hours, and it isn't really that comfortable. And it also means that crews can foray across the lunar surface, can last longer, and travel further than ever before. In an unpressurized rover, like the LTV, mission duration is limited by how long oxygen in each astronaut's spacesuit lasts. The final design for the RV hasn't been decided on, so experts can't say what it will look like, but the goal is to allow multiple astronauts to live and work inside the vehicle for up to two weeks. Chafer says the habitability habitable mobility platform will be delivered to the moon between one and three Artemis missions after the LTV's debut. At the conclusion of the habitable mobility platform's first mission, Chaffer says the vehicle will remain on the moon for use in future missions. I found that absolutely fascinating. Basically having a mobile RV slash workstation Ah, oh, that that'd be so so cool. It does make me think about the hazards involved, though, because if they're in something that's meant to move around and can possibly hit some rough terrain, and they're it's pressurized inside and they're not wearing their spacesuits while moving for some reason, that does bring up a little bit of safety concerns. But these people at NASA are way smarter than I ever could be. So. They're probably thinking of that, and they're coming up with a solution. I think this is really cool, and it's really exciting. All right, to the last section of this article. Moon rocks and lunar dust could shape the base camp's appearance. 
the lunar cabin seems poised to capture the imaginations of the world, as science fiction has been conjuring what dwellings in space might look like for generations. While the design has not been finalized, Schaefer says NASA is looking at modular inflatable structures as a way of creating larger habitable spaces on the moon that are compact and lightweight in transit. Another intriguing possibility Schaefer mentioned is a large-scale 3D printer that uses moon dust or rock as its raw material. He says a machine like this could manufacture bricks or other shapes and either assemble a dwelling from scratch or augment one brought from Earth. Indeed, Schaefer says a 3D printer prototype is currently building a test structure in Houston. I picture one of those uh, cement-slash-concrete robot, uh, 3D printing robots. Oh, goodness. I can't imagine. That would be so cool to see it work in person. Uh, Shale Neal, a geologist at the University of Notre Dame who has studied lunar dust samples, says moon dust or rock may have an especially key role to play in shielding astronauts from radiation from cosmic rays and solar flares. Earth's atmosphere and magnetic field filter out most of the harmful radiation. But the moon has no atmosphere and no magnetosphere, so any humans lingering there would need extra protection. Neil says up to six feet of lunar material may be required to provide astronauts sufficient protection from radiation, which at high doses can increase a person's risk of developing cancer. Beyond harvesting water and building materials from the moon, NASA is also looking at to extract oxygen, which is surprisingly plentiful in moon rocks and metals like aluminum, says Desai. This is all part of developing an ability to, quote, live off the land on the moon that could make a base more self-sufficient and help it serve as a resupply station for spacecraft bound for Mars. But as humanity redefines its relationship with the moon, National Air and Space Museum curator Tassel Muir Harmony wonders if it may be cause for reflection. As Harmony relates, upon seeing our home planet rise over the lunar surface, Apollo 8 astronaut William Anders famously remarked, quote, We came all this way to explore the moon, and the most important thing is that we discovered the Earth, end quote. Now, she says, quote, NASA keeps using the word sustainable in relation to the base camp and concept. I wonder if trying to use lunar resources to make our presence on the moon sustainable might make us think differently about the sustainability of our presence here on Earth. So that's, that story made me extremely happy when I was reading it the first time. It gives me hope for the future of humanity, and it kind of puts things in perspective as to what's important going forward as humanity. Like she said there at the end, it gives us a little bit of perspective. People are going to be living on the moon. They're going to be living 240,000 miles away from us, and they're exactly the same as us. They could be men, women, anything. They could be from India. They could be from China. They could be from Russia. Up there on the moon, it doesn't matter. They're all trying to survive. They're all trying to explore. They're all trying to discover new things. So it kind of allows us to have an opportunity to break down these barriers that we've created here on Earth. Now, those barriers are necessary, of course, and I'm not a huge proponent of globalism, but this is a huge step for humanity. 
and I find it inspiring. All right, well, you've heard me ramble about all this science, and obviously that was a good story, and it was a positive one, but there's one more thing, the daily delight, where we end on a story that's going to make you maybe giggle, maybe laugh, maybe just have a smile run across your face. All right, Monty, the singing donkey, serenades his humans in a beautiful baritone voice. An adorable 28-year-old rescued donkey named Monty, who lives in Conroe, Texas, loves to serenade his loving human, Piggy Ruggles, in a beautiful serenade voice. Ruggles adopted Monty from Texas Miracle Ranch in 2020. He was an older donkey, but it was love at first sight for Ruggles. Monty was very shy at first, but then he found his own voice in spades. Quote, The third day he was here, we got back, and we got down to feed him, and we got to the stalls, and all of a sudden he just started this bray, and I looked at him. His little face looked so confused. He looked so surprised at what had just come out of his mouth. It was like he found his voice. He literally found his voice, and that's what he does. The mask Monty is wearing protects his eyes from insects. It neither impedes his sight nor his movement, as he can see perfectly well through it. And we have videos of here of him singing with the, his little mask on. And he, oh, he's also wearing uh, what they describe as protective socks to make sure that bugs don't get at his legs as well. Uh, honestly, just talking about it, makes me happy but some of these videos are quite funny and quite cool so as always i will have a link in the description to the magazine that has all these articles including this last one which has embedded videos all right well thank you for joining me for the third episode of the daily flip podcast and remember stay safe don't die